Okay, so to kind of sum up how my week has been, I'm working last night and I'm like actively making a cocktail behind a bar and a dude walks up and goes, uh, excuse me, do you work here? <laughs> like, it's not like I was just kind of hanging out or standing like in the middle of like the middle of the, the bar or anything. I was making a cocktail and like I thought it was a joke. Yeah. The dude just, so like words failed. And I just kind of like glassy-eyed stared at him and just tapped the logo yeah. on my shirt. <laughs> and he's like, do you have a bathroom? No. What the heck? Like, no, no, we shit in a bucket and toss it in the river like 19th century bargemen. Yeah, we uh, listen, man. We don't want people just shooting DNA all over our restaurant. We, we, we just take that outside, pal. <laughs> It's the old meme. Do you guys have a bathroom here? No, we shit outside no, like bears. Yeah, like bears. But like, do you work here? No, bro. Be cool. But Be I cool. bought this shirt like two and a half hours ago, and no one has said a thing. Silence, you <laughs> fool! You blow it. You blow it. Be cool, man. Be cool. Oh, uh, speaking of work, I've had a shit week too. Um, and now we get to take a break from it and have a little bit of fun. Well, Everybody, I am Rob North. And I am Chris Miller. And welcome back to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, episode four. So, uh, what are we going to be talking about today? Today we are going to cover uh, pirates, privateers, buccaneers, and the differences therein. Ah, yeah. So, uh, spoiler alert, uh, not, not a lot. Not, not, a, not, not a lot. There's, there's, there's some. It's a significant enough difference. Yeah, but and, and it's it's a pretty interesting story too. Like some of the some of the backstory, some of the people we're going to cover are pretty cool. But uh, what it's all going to boil down to at the end of this, you're not going to learn too much. <laughs> you might learn a surprising amount. Uh, <laughs> these terms tend to be pretty interchangeable by society at large. Um, you know, our our favorite sports team, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Everyone, they of course go by the Bucks. You know, let's go Bucks, so on and so forth. So we're going to go over some of these terms, what exactly they mean, where they came from, and what exactly these guys did. And some gals, actually, which we're going to talk about. Yeah, quite a few. Uh-huh. Quite a few women. Before we get into that, just uh, thanks to everybody who listened to our last episode about your boy, Steve Bonnet. I know we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I'm glad you guys did, too. Thank you for all the feedback. Um, we're glad that we managed to get our major sound issues worked out. We promise to keep our discussion about the movie Cabin Boy to a minimum this time. I make no such promise. <laughs> These pipes are clean. I, I watched it again for the first time in about 15 years this past week. Oh my God, is it bad. David Letterman's in it. David Letterman's David in it. Le- God, I hate those fancy lads. I'm- <laughs> Yeah, I'm so glad that our big sticking point on this podcast has become Chris Elliott's 19th most successful movie. Oh, it's it's so bad. I'm telling you guys, if you haven't seen it, please just watch it. It's really short because we got to have a discussion about this. I, okay, I would recommend if you do it though. If you're going to watch that movie, <laughs> go to the beer distributor, go to the liquor store, get a little something to alter your brain, roll up a fat bone, <laughs> spark it up. You're going to need something <laughs> to help. I don't to know, help you process this flick. I don't. I don't know that you can buy at a store what you might need to enjoy that. Uh, you might need to go to the right kind of doctor, yeah, uh, in Pennsylvania, to get you that uh, that that, does that pretty dude, little car. Does that dude in Lawrenceville still sell the uh, what do you call it, VCR like cleaner or something like that? It was just poppers. Oh, tape head cleaner. Yeah, buffing it. <laughs> 
<laughs> dilating your beehole. Is he? I went, is he still there? I haven't been to Lawrenceville in a while. I'm not cool enough for Lawrenceville anymore. I was when it sucked, but now it's expensive. Well, it's it's, it's you know retro and expensive now. So I'm guessing there is a guy who does sell something to do with VCRs for the hipsters. <laughs> Probably. That's a good point. We'll have to go by and just score some poppers, which are legal, which are legal. <laughs> and on that point, <laughs> uh, we're going to get into some things that definitely were illegal or not, or maybe in a bit of a gray area. <laughs> I like gray area. This operates in the gray. Absolutely. Uh, so the, the topic today, this is going to be a bit more of a free discussion. It's not going to be so much us telling a story. Like we have the last couple times. This is going to be more, eh, a little more open, a little more free form. This is a roundtable discussion episode with with two of us, right? Three if you count Jack the dog. But he's sleeping. But he's he's sleeping. As is his want. Our canine outreach ambassador. So our sources for this episode, um, they're really kind of too numerous to mention. I pulled from about thirty different books, articles. Uh, Old uh, manifests that I found on archive websites for various vessels, things like that. So, I say we get straight into it. Yeah, let's just go for it. So, let's just start with the term pirate. We all use it. We all know it's popular. We all know the certain tropes that go with it. But the definition of a pirate is, to put it simply, it's a thief on the water. Yep. You're you're a sea robber. Um, and, And we've said that... As long as there have been boats, there have been pirates. I don't know if that's necessarily true. Yeah, I mean, that that's just one of those, like, kind of old hokey sayings. It's a fun one, though. But as long as there have been civilizations, there have been pirates. That's pretty much certain. I mean, the earliest historical mentions of acts of piracy come from Egyptian records mm. in, like, 1400 BCE. So a, a three and a half millennia ago, uh, mentioning a group called the Lukans, uh, which were pretty much a group of sea raiders that lived on the southern coast of Turkey, attacking ships and coastal settlements. Pretty much the textbook definition of pirates. Yeah. They just happen to be a little more of a civilization than a, uh, a breakaway group. Yeah, like that was that was kind of their thing. Like you grew up, you were going to be a pirate. It was almost like uh, like Vikings. Mm-hmm. Like that, that was your lot in life. Yeah. Seafaring civilizations that were that made a practice out of raiding. Yeah, like, hey, it would be really cool if we just took everybody else's stuff instead of producing our, our own, own stuff. Well, if you're a resource-poor civilization... You gotta do what you gotta do. You gotta do what you gotta do. Now, every seafaring civilization since then has had to deal with pirates to some degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the ancient world, the Greeks, the Romans, through the medieval times, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, all the way up to the modern era. We still have pirates active today uh, on the Somali coast, the Gulf of Aden, uh, the... Uh, Islands of Indonesia, the Philippines. Pirates are starting to appear again on the coast of Libya. Uh, any failed state with a coastline, really. And just about every other poorly patrolled river, lake, coastline, shipping lane. If security is going to be an issue there, it's going to draw people who are going to prey on on shipping in those areas. And that's that's a pirate. I mean, that's it's a pretty simple definition. And, you know, pretty easy to hold on to. Now... Privateers. Yeah, this one is a little bit, a little bit more complicated, and also yes. kind of operates in that gray area. We'll we'll touch on that in a moment. But. Yes, it's similar practices under different circumstances. I would say so. As opposed to a pirate, a privateer does essentially do the same thing. You hunt merchant shipping, small warships, with the intent of taking them as prizes and benefiting from the value of that prize. Except they do it during a time of war having been given a license by a government uh, 
This license is known as a letter of mark and reprisal, mark being spelled M-A-R-Q-U-E, and you receive a mark of letter and letter of mark and reprisal from the government of a nation, maybe your own, maybe one that you showed up and said, hey, can we help? And this license is given to the owners or captains of privately owned and commissioned ships to hunt the vessels of a particular nation uh, or nations that they are in a state of war with, neither sink them or take them as prizes. Um, in return, they pay a percentage of the prize value of their captures to the government that issued their, them the license in return. <clears throat> so these letters of mark and reprisal were generally seen as a legitimate part of the law of nations and were a perfectly accepted facet of warfare. Uh, holders of letters of mark were expected to obey the laws of war, honor treaty obligations, avoid attacking neutral shipping, treat your captives fairly, kindly, courteously, keep them safe. They're required to bring each prize claim before a naval court or an admiralty court, which judged the legitimacy of the capture, the validity of their letter of mark, and if the captured vessel did indeed belong to the enemy, because a lot of ships in this time would fly false flags. They would just fly the flags of other nations to either blend in or keep uh, pirates at bay. So the prize would then be condemned. It would be sold at auction, and the proceeds would be divided amongst the crew of the privateer vessel, its owners, and the government in question. It just makes a lot of sense to have you know, a contracted Navy mm-hmm. because it's so cost-effective. It is. Whenever you're dealing well, with... We'll get into that a little more in depth here in a minute, yeah, I, I think, because I have some notes about that. Yeah, I, I do as well. But it just it's a, it's a much cheaper way, especially like if you are empire building. Mm-hmm. Now you can keep your home fleet at home, and you can kind of pay these dudes... More focused on purely military objectives. Right. And you can you can have these dudes out there harassing other shipping. So well, it's like having else, a naval militia at your fingertips. Yeah, it, it it makes a lot of sense. Now we talked about it being an essentially legal part of of international law and the laws of war. Now pirate, uh, sorry, privateers did occasionally run the risk of being tried as pirates when captured by the enemy. Uh, they could have their privateering licenses revoked by their their government or their admiralty. They often didn't find out about peace treaties until after they happened. You would end up attacking, quote-unquote, friendly vessels. You know, you're dealing with complicated matters of the legitimacy of these letters of mark, especially in the case of civil war. For, you know, for example, the English government tried and hanged eight privateer captains that James II issued with letters of mark from Ireland. And they said, well, we don't recognize the legitimacy of this nation. It's a breakaway nation. It's a rebel nation against our crown. You belong to us. You're part of the empire. We don't recognize the legitimacy of these letters of mark. So instead of a legitimate act of war, your attacks on these vessels are acts of piracy. It's time to dance the hemp and jig. So where did privateering come from? It's possibly a practice that's thousands of years old. The earliest mention of something that that looks like it could be privateering come from Chinese and Japanese records that go back as far as 1200 BCE. Mm -hmm. Now, those are a little vague. The mentions are a little vague, so we don't know if it's anything like the practice that we know today. Now, it definitely had its roots in the Middle Ages, for sure. We yeah. know this as a fact. As yeah, there, as, it, was, it was used quite a bit then. As early as 1050 AD, uh, the King of England, Edward the Confessor, had a practice that was somewhat like this. He organized the five primary English port towns, uh, known as the Sank Ports, into a confederation that was meant to in times of conflict, provide ships, supplies, and men to the crown. Now, in return, these five towns received special privileges, such as freedom from 
duties and taxes on imports and exports, uh, salvage rights, and the right to search other vessels at sea, essentially giving them legal carte blanche and allowing them to, by extension, commit legal acts of piracy. It's good work if you can get it. Uh, Henry III, a 13th century English king, issued a uh, letter uh, patent giving the St. Ports full control over their defenses Mm -hmm. in times of war a couple hundred years later, basically saying, hey, if you want to send ships out to raid the enemy, that's fine. Under your own control, at your own cost, cool. It's fine by us. Uh, 1295, the official... uh, First official letter patent of mark and reprisal from the English crown, Edward I at this time, authorized merchant vessels to hunt the king's enemies in times of war in return for providing a portion of the prize money to the crown. And from this point, privateering as we know it began to develop throughout the following centuries in basically every place with an ocean and warring powers. So we have the Eastern Mediterranean, the Byzantines and the Turks are at war with the Venetians, the Sicilians, dozens of minor petty states. And these states were constantly hiring out their own merchant captains or even pirate vessels from these little pirate holdouts um, in the Greek islands and along the Balkan coasts to augment their naval forces in return for part of the value of the prizes. Uh, in the Baltic and the North Sea, you had the coastal German states, the Scandinavian nations. They were highly into the practice of privateering for centuries. And England and France both got into it because... England and France fought how many wars? Over oh, I think they're the actually doing period? one right now. <laughs> they all just kind of happen. No, that's that's Brexit. That's not a war yet. Uh, give it time. This is how it starts. <laughs> I, I I believe in it. I, I believe that that might come down to it. They're going to misbreed too much. <laughs> so as nations became richer and more powerful, ships became faster, easier to arm... European nations are expanding beyond Europe. They're setting up colonies and trading posts abroad. The practice of privateering becomes even more common. By the Tudor period, it was a standard practice in times of war for just about every European power. I want to take a moment to focus on the reprisal part of the letter of mark and reprisal. At least in England, until 1620, this is the year that the pilgrims set sail on the Mayflower. Mm-hmm. You could only be issued with a letter of mark and reprisal if you could prove, and you had to apply for the letter of mark and reprisal. They weren't just offered. You had to go to the court and apply and prove that you'd taken some sort of financial loss at the hands of the people that the country was now at war with. Hence the reprisal part of that. Now, this process was abandoned in 1620, and when they realized, well... We can we can fudge that part of it. We can get rid of that part. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of screw that a little bit. And then we get to the Elizabethan period. You know, yeah, this is kind of whenever it really really takes off. Like, oh, is, really? Yeah, it really cements. Not a, privateering had already existed as a practice. Mm-hmm. Now it cements its effectiveness. Well, and also what starts to happen in this period is the governments themselves. You know the the. The Parliament, members of Parliament, members of the high nobility, even Queen Liz herself started investing in privateering vessels. You know, they had this long war, especially against Spain, that she, over the course of this, she invested tens of thousands of pounds Mm -hmm. from the royal coffers. Francis Drake. Yeah, that was the prime example. She called him my pirate. She called him my pirate. So he takes this big circumnavigation expedition to. 
not only start flying the English flag and start claiming lands for England, but also to nail down some Spanish treasure galleons. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he does. You know, he captures the Cacafuego, the, the, the fire shitter. That's <laughs> the direct translation. So which is a hell of a name for a ship. I, I want to know, like, how do, you, how do you settle on that? Well, the <laughs> full name of it was the Nuestra Señora de la Concepción. I yep. don't exactly know where Cacafuego came from. But that's what she but was. in all the records is Cacafuego. This fire shitter. Hey, well, you know what? Let's just go with it. Let's just go with it. I, I'm, I'm sure it was for a good reason. Uh, it's got to have something in there. But in this expedition, she invested three and a half thousand pounds, which is hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's money, mm-hmm. and two ships. Now, he captures these rich vessels. They return over 160,000 pounds. On her investment. Now that's one and a half times the treasury's entire yearly income for the crown. This is a return of 4,700% on her original investment. Business is a booming. <laughs> so after this period, navies grow larger, they grow more professional, trading companies begin to take precedence over private expeditions. So the investments in privateers begin to move away from the nobility and more into the merchant class. Mm-hmm. And by the 18th century, swarms of privateers are now sailing from every significant port on a nation's coastline at the outbreak of war. And now the, the practice is in full swing. I want to swing back to Queen Elizabeth real quick. I sure. did come across one thing, uh, and it was about, like, she was so into privateering. It mm-hmm. was such a, a central part of what she wanted to do that colonization kind of took a little bit of a back seat. Mm-hmm. And they think that her love of, like, Francis Drake and all this stuff is largely one of the reasons why Raleigh's ships disappeared. They Possibly, said that, yes. Yeah, that's why Roanoke disappeared, because they, they're just, the focus was elsewhere. Well, two reasons for that. One is her focus on, on privateering instead of exploration. Yes. Two is the fact that when they were supposed to send this relief expedition originally to Roanoke, the War of Spain broke out. The war that yeah. led to the Spanish Armada. I just like that those two things, those two things kind of link together, and that we still have absolutely no idea what happened in Roanoke. No, not. I mean, they did C-R-O, it on American Horror Story. And I, Post. That's it. Yeah, they did it on uh, on American Horror Story, and I I think they really nailed it. <laughs> I think that it was, I haven't seen it. Oh my god, I haven't seen it. I know I have to. I, I'll tell you what, like. The first three episodes, it's done like a true crime doc, and it's really good. Yeah. And then it's a reality show. And mm. then it's not good at all. It's super weird. But <laughs> Cuba Gooding Jr.'s in it, and everybody loves him. He's fantastic. <laughs> but then, like, he comes in playing him. Like, he was an actor, and now he's, like, a bro. But he's wearing, like, gold chains and shit, just so you know that he's, like, like the black guy. Like, oh, ugh. my God. Ugh. Kathy Bates is in it. She dies, like, four times. Don't watch it. Watch like the first three episodes and then just stop. Because like I, honestly, I will, like as a crime doc, it, it's pretty cool. I, I will be sure to take the time to check it out. Yeah, and and just so you know, which one the black guy is? He's the guy with all the gold chains and he's really edgy and he's not here for you. I'm oh, good to know. Shit. Good to know. I'm so glad that in 2018 we're still producing television in 1972. Yeah, well, that's it's a good thing. So let's get into why a government uses privateers. Now, the simple answer, they are a force multiplier at little or no cost to the state. Mm. If you don't have a large navy, navies are hugely expensive to build and maintain. Put ships and assets out onto the water, gives you a battlefield equalizer, especially against larger navies. Mm -hmm. 
and the state pays practically nothing to get these assets out there. Yeah, we talked earlier about uh, the Royal William mm-hmm. and uh, the, the British warship, ship of the line, built in uh, 1719. It's It cost a little over half a percent of the gross domestic product. Yeah. That's an incredible amount of money for a warship. 31,000 pounds, right? Mm-hmm. It was 31,000 pounds at, in 1719, which is a tremendous amount of That's money. That's huge. It's 0.6% of the GDP. For one yeah, warship. For one warship. So it makes a lot of sense to basically uber your navy. Mm-hmm. Well, let's look at one of the best examples of this. The Continental Navy during the American Revolution. Yeah. The Continental Navy and the state navies, and yet they did have state navies as well as the national navy, were able to scrounge together throughout the entire course of the war 53 ships of varying size and effectiveness to fight the largest navy in the world. Now, the Royal Navy at this time had them outnumbered 14 to 1, if not more. And this is 53 ships over the course of the war, maybe 8 or 10 active on the ocean at any one time. Now, by comparison, the Continental Congress and the states all issued letters of mark. The number of letters of mark they issued were somewhere between, and and these are the low and high figures, 2,639 and 2,848. That's almost 3,000 ships sailing from 13 colonies. That's insane. That's insane. And this is at very little cost to the continental government. Yep. You basically have to pay the postage to get the letters of mark out there, essentially. Yeah. That's it. Everything else is private investment. Yep. It's private investment. And they pay you to do it. They, yeah. They pay you to do it. Yeah. So it makes a tremendous amount of sense. And these... And we're saying, oh, this portion of their their haul goes to the government. Most of this is is a pretty Jim Dandy deal. Yeah. Every every letter of Mark example that I could find online was somewhere was normally about seventy five twenty five or about eighty twenty in favor of the privateer. Mm-hmm. So, which you would think wouldn't be the case. Just which like, you think wouldn't be the case. You, you're but, talking about these monarchies, like oh, they loved everyone else's money. Yes. However. <sighs> However, you have to make this a tempting investment. You have to make this a tempting mm. deal. And if it's going to be a 50-50 split, well, they're sitting there going, okay, I'm sinking tens of thousands of dollars of my own money. With my own boat. With my own ship. And a, and I have to do all the legwork. Well, for a 50-50 deal, you know what? Mm, I don't think so. 80-20? Now we're talking a different yeah, story. Yeah, now we're talking. And, I mean... It, it... So, yeah. Three thousand privateers in the revolution alone and if you have a large established navy too private the practice of privateering can be a a focus of your forces because what it allows you to do you will you let your privateers take care of attacking the enemy merchant shipping mm-hmm. and then you allow your actual naval ships to focus on purely offensive or defensive military goals countering the enemy navy supporting your army in some cases yes you're hunting enemy shipping but it, it allows you to focus your effort, your naval efforts. So, some of these privateers would break blockades. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. Well, some of these privateers were as well-armed as, as naval frigates. I mean, some of these privateers had 18, 24, 30, in some cases, 36 guns. Yeah, that's that a lot. That is a full-size frigate. That's a lot of guns. And 200, 250, 300 men on board sometimes? Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's these, insane. 
it's these aren't little crews. These aren't like little guys and robots harassing people. But I mean, it's like some of these guys knew yeah. like, these were formidable fighting vessels. Well, there's a lot of cases, especially in the War of eighteen twelve and the and the Revolution, of privateers taking on enemy warships and winning. The brothers Lafitte. Yeah, people like uh, John Ordrano mm-hmm. in the War of eighteen twelve. I mean, his his ship, the Prince de Neufchatel, uh, took out three separate Royal Navy warships. At least eighteen gun privateer. It took was out at, at least three three enemy sloops of war. And I don't know how many he engaged, but like three were sunk. Mm-hmm. Not to mention all the merchant ships he took. I mean, he made a huge. Amount he of made money. a killing. He made a killing. He was a really good pirate. Yeah. But so, you, you know, I'm sorry. Height, uh, he was a really good privateer. <laughs> unless you're English. And yeah. that, that son of a bitch was a pirate. He was a pirate. So at the, at the height of the use of privateers, you know, most major powers have a large number of colonies all over the globe. Let's look at, let's look at the British. So the Royal Navy, at the height of its power, the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, it has just shy of 900 warships. But if you're sending those 900 warships to all your colonies... You have to blockade all the French ports. You have to patrol all your colonies. You have to have your own home battle fleet ready to sail. And if you then have to send a portion of your ships after enemy merchant shipping, that's going to spread you really thin. Now, if you allow privateers to take care of that, then you're able to accomplish your goals much easier. And you make a couple quick buckaroos on the side. Mm-hmm. Sliding yeah. you a stack for the trouble. Oh, it's absolute. And it's a, it's a massive cash cow for the government. Yeah. It's win-win. It absolutely is win-win. So why... why and, you unless you're the French. That's, that's true. Although they made a lot of use of privates. They, they, well, we'll get to that in a bit here. So why become a privateer? Simple answer. You get fabulously rich. Well, not always, but you, you can have the be opportunity rich. to get fabulously rich. It's, it's high-risk, high-reward. Yeah, because you, you weren't getting rich in the Navy. <clears throat> yeah, if you were lucky, you got wealthy. Especially mm-hmm. if you were a captain or an officer. Because privateer prize splits... Since you're under essentially government contract, you tend to use the same prize split that the Navy would. So one quarter of the value of the prize for the captain, a quarter divided amongst the rest of the officers, three-eighths divided amongst the petty officers, midshipmen, seamen, uh, able seamen. The ad- whereas the admiral or the owners uh, would get one-eighth, but they would get an eighth of all the captures from all the ships under their command or their ownership. Now, for even the lower ranks, this could be a lot of cash. Uh, one example, uh, there was a privateer brig sailing out of, I think, South Carolina in 1780. It was called the Hope. And they captured an English merchant vessel that had 26,500 gallons of rum on board. It goes to the prize court. After the share going to the uh, continental government, the auctioning of the prize... The lowest-ranked member of the crew, who was a 14-year-old cabin boy, got $700 in prize money. Did somebody say cabin boy? No, 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 no. No, we are not doing this right now. Save it. I make no promises. Save it. I make no promises. $700 in 1780 is $132,000 today. That's it's going not, to a 14-year-old. Not a bad paycheck. Going to a 14-year-old. That is a lot of magic cards. Mm-hmm. So by comparison, the average wage of a sailor in 1780, it was six bucks a month. Six dollars a month. So this guy is getting paid about nine years wages for capturing, for playing a, probably a very non-combat role in capturing one ship. Yeah. What are, what are you he, he probably got, uh, like, it was a non-combat role. He was probably making little kitties out of fish sticks like in the movie Cabin Boy. Jesus. 
right. Has this become a beast that cannot be fed? <coughs> oh, you uncorked it. You called down the thunder, and baby, you got it. Oh, God. Okay, so that, that number, that's for one prize. Now, imagine the share the captain received. Right. So, we have another example of an American privateer, the Yankee. Now, this was in the War of 1812, sailing out of, I think, Rhode Island. The Yankee's a pretty good slap-in-the-face name. It is. It is. Well, sailing out of it's sailing out of New England. Of course, it's going to be called the Yankee. Of course, it is. It's going to be called the Yankee. I imagine everybody on board sounds like Ted Kennedy. (laughs) And in one cruise, it captured I think eight prizes. Total value two hundred ninety six thousand dollars. Now, the captain Oliver Wilson received a total of fifty one thousand dollars as his share. That's two and a half million bucks today. Wow. This was a three and a half month cruise, one hundred and forty six days, and this was one of five cruises the Yankee made in the war. Now, you want to know the big kicker? Hmm. Captain Wilson was twenty six years old. <laughs> so, and you and I, we're both thirty one, right? Correct. Do you feel like you haven't accomplished much in your life when you well, think mean, about what this guy did? I mean, we, we, we got the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like it. I like it. And if anybody out there wants to hand me $2.5 million for doing this for three and a half months... We'll split it. Yeah, we'll split it. Yeah, we're not greedy men. We are not. So, uh, let's look at another example. Uh, Robert Surcouf, who was probably the most famous French privateer of all time. Maybe next to Jean Bart. I was going to say... Was sailing during the Napoleonic Wars. Now he was sailing on the side that lost. He made. He started out as a privateer captain. Did that for about ten years, and then just stayed on land and just funded other privateers. Yep. He became the owner of a bunch of privateer ships. He made the equivalent of two billion dollars in today's money. That's insane. And privateering is only like slightly harder on your employees than Amazon. Yeah. So from an ownership standpoint, privateering is a no-brainer. You have no physical risk to yourself, and if you desire it, sure, you can go on board the ship. The successful cruises tend to pay f- more than pay for the unsuccessful cruises. You know, you run the risk of some of these ships being captured, but if you're sending out 10 ships and each one is giving you a 300% return and two of those ships don't come back, well, oh well, yeah. you're still making a pile of cash. And, and it does bear mention that he made all this money on the side that lost. On the side that lost. On the side that lost. So, let's well, let's do some math regarding the Yankee. She cost about $18,000 to arm an outfit in 1812, and about $5,000 a year to provision, to crew, and to maintain. So over three years, that's a total of $31,000. Her second cruise, her most successful, netted her owners $28,000. Now, that's one of five cruises she made, bringing in over $100,000 for her owners in prize money. And that's a threefold return on your original investment. And she was one of 13 privateering vessels owned by these guys, John Smith and James DeWolf, out of Rhode Island. That's a lot of cash. That's a lot of cash. That is a lot of cash. These privateer owners, these privateer captains, and even some of the regular sailors became fabulously wealthy. Now, privateering does kind of come to an end eventually. The practice fades out as smaller nations become richer, everybody can afford larger navies, and the practice is eventually outlawed at the Declaration of Paris in 1856, the the peace treaty that ended the Crimean War. Mm. The U.S. was not a signatory of the treaty. Yeah, they were like, oh, we're not so sure us, we're rebels, baby. (laughs) But it did adhere to the terms of the treaty Mm. after the last major use of privateers in the Western world, which was by the Confederacy in the Civil War. Now, the Confederates, now, the United States didn't have a huge navy at this point, but the Confederacy had really no navy. 
So they have to do something. They have to do something to attack union shipping. Uh, now, the terms of the treaty were affirmed worldwide in the Hague Conference of 1907. The process was offic- or the practice was officially banned. And the last evidence I could find of any li- letter of mark being issued was in 1879. There was a little war between Bolivia and Peru when they fought Chile for the control of some coastal territory. Bolivia, which had no navy at that point, started issuing letters of mark. That's the last evidence I could find of the practice. So people are arguing, are arguing that privateering is making a return. Uh, now, during the World Wars, you had the arming of merchant ships as auxiliary cruisers, and lately you've had the emergence of private military companies that are taking to the sea. We had that conversation the other day. They're we did. Calling it, they're calling it privateering, but it's not. It's a bit of a misnomer, I, and, and yeah. I would argue that neither case is really a reemergence of privateering. Yeah. Yeah, the armed merchant cruisers, but they're being were... outfitted by the government at government expense, and they're being crewed at least partially with naval sailors yeah, to man so the guns. It, it was... It wasn't impressment of anything, but it no. was it was just a way to secure your own shipping. You weren't actively harassing other shipping. You weren't uh, uh, harassing other Well, you were other uh, the point of some of these armed merchant cruisers was they kind of blended in with merchant shipping. Mm-hmm. But I would also argue that these private military companies are not privateers either. No, so, those were used for defense. They, yeah, they're they being weren't used to used defend for, merchant yeah. shipping against pirates. Exactly. I don't think, yeah, so I don't think either practice really fits under privateering. So you have pirates, thieves at sea. You have privateers, legal thieves at sea during times of war. And uh, according to the United States Constitution, <clears throat> Article 1, Section 8 states, Congress shall have power, and it goes on to say, to grant letters of mark and reprisal. And it's mm-hmm. still in it. So there's still a chance for Rob and I to get our privateer on. Which, has, haven't people argued for the use of the law of that article? Like Ron Paul was doing it for a while. To, yeah, yeah, uh, he was. He stumped for it big time. Of uh, in the war on terror, that mm-hmm. we use Art, uh, Article One, Section Eight to basically hunt terrorists without by, by going over the head of the, demo, uh, the uh, diplomatic process with other nations. Yep. So let's move on to buccaneers. So where does this term come from? It originates with a group of landless French settlers on the island of uh, islands of Tortuga and Hispaniola. Hispaniola being where Haiti and the Dominican Republic are now. They would sustain themselves through hunting deer and wild pigs and would dry and smoke the meat on wooden racks known as boucons uh, by the Arawak natives and hence became known as bouconniers. Now this becomes anglicized into buccaneers. Mm -hmm. They start appearing around 1630. They sustain themselves economically by selling this jerked meat to... French and Dutch traders and raiders. Oh, stop it. What are you, 12? <laughs> One day I'll be mature enough not to laugh at that. <laughs> Damn it, now I'm starting to. <laughs> and soon they began taking up some of their practices by raiding Spanish settlements, capturing Spanish ships for extra money, most of the time using small boats. Canoes, longboats. They just pop out of these river inlets and just row up to these trading ships and just climb on board. Maybe you have to shoot a couple people, maybe you don't. And so you use these small boats to attack larger craft, Spanish logging villages. They had a reputation for marksmanship with their long-barreled muskets and for the speed and surprise of their raids. Yeah, these communities of of Bukhans <clears throat> sprung up. And a lot of these guys were, yeah, well, not a lot of them were deserters, but there were escaped slaves, mm-hmm. uh, shipwreck sailors. So, like, these communities kind of sprung up. Well, this is during the first half of the 17th century as well, so you have all these religious wars going on in Europe. Yep. You have a lot of... A lot of these guys are French Huguenot Protestants. A lot of these guys are Catholics fleeing from the Low Countries. 
A lot of these guys are even from landlocked countries like the Czech Republic and, and Germany. They're getting the hell out of Europe because you have the 30 years war going on at this time. You have these re huge religious wars that people are fleeing. And this is a time where that spark of adventure has been lit under Europe with the emergence of all these colonies. So over the next few decades, their ranks become swelled with sailors, adventurers, pirates of just about every nation you can think of. And they begin to receive the support of nations like France, England, the Netherlands, pretty much as a ready-made irregular military force. Now, in times of war, they get issued with letters of marque to attack Spanish settlements and shipping. But then you get a lot, then you have a bit of a problem. Most of these groups, once peace was declared and their letters of marque were nullified, just kept going on these raids for personal gain. And England especially ended up sort of embracing this practice. Yeah, it, it forces the Spanish to start recognizing French and British colonies. Well, it's not even that, too. It, well, yes, it is that. But it, what you also have is these nations, even when you're not at war, are still your trading rivals. Mm -hmm. And so you use them to you use operations like this and men like these to weaken your, your rival trading powers, even when a state of war technically doesn't exist. Which, in the Caribbean... Especially in the 17th century, you have this idea called no peace beyond the line, which even when a declared war isn't happening, there's always raids happening, there's always piracy, there's always ships being captured, and it was just considered standard operating procedure. You're technically in a state of peace until you get beyond the line demarcated. It's, it's this longitudinal meridian demarcated by the Treaty of Tordesillas, which was a, we'll get into that later, but once you pass that point, anything goes really. It's the it's the Wild West. It's it's chaotic. There's constant fighting, but there's a lot of opportunity as well. Mm -hmm. And that's where you start getting some of these really famous privateers, people like Henry or sorry, buccaneers. People like Henry Morgan, especially the famed Captain Morgan. Now he's a Welshman. He puts together these military forces and sacks huge Spanish settlements like Portobello, Panama City. These are huge events. He, for the attack on Portobello, he assembled 12 ships and 700 men. And for the attack on Panama, he assembled 30 ships and almost 2,000 men. Privately, in a time of technically peace, he's putting together an army. <laughs> I mean, it's insane. And he goes on to be pardoned for these attacks. He's never officially punished. Becomes a big-time landowner. Becomes the lieutenant governor of Jamaica. Yeah, he, he was the governor. Gets a full state, gets a full state funeral. <laughs> it's awesome. And all the rum you can drink. And all the rum you can drink. Now, there's another guy, Daniel Montbar, who was a Frenchman. He's known to the Spanish as Montbar the Exterminator due to the ferocity and the frequency of his raids on Spanish settlements, all of which happened when France and Spain weren't at war with each other. <laughs> He's known for giving no quarter to Spanish soldiers, and he enjoyed torturing the survivors he captured. The dude was a dick. Uh, and this is with somebody you're technically at peace with. And one of his favorite practices was, and this took me in two very different directions. This is profoundly bizarre. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's gnarly. It's not for the squeamish, but here It's we go. gnarly, so here we go. He would... Cut open the abdomen of a chosen prisoner, and he would use this to extract information out of everybody else. Cut open the abdomen, nail the end of his large intestine to a post, and then force the man to, quote, dance to his death 
by beating his backside with burning logs <laughs> and just unspooling the guy's intestines. Why was the Why were the logs on fire? I don't. Uh, personality, <laughs> little flair, little panache. I mean, you've been to France, right? It's, it's the jazz hands of beating a man with his innards nailed to a stick. It, and and this took me in two very different directions because I, there was a part of me that was just like like oh god I don't know and then there was the other part of me that's like dude that is the most metal album cover art I can think of yeah it's pretty badass <laughs> so yeah that these are the Buccaneers these are the guys who I I don't think it's unfair to say that a Buccaneer is someone that kind of sits between what a pirate is and what a privateer is yeah they're definitely both of those things they are more. They're more chameleonic. They, yeah, I, I like that they kind of play by their own rules. Like, yeah, they if they get a letter of mark, great. If they don't get a letter of mark, great. great. Yeah, no, they, they tended to fit either mold depending on the political situation at the time. Yeah. And a lot of them were, enorm- like Henry Morgan, like Daniel Montbar, enormously successful. So the golden age of buccaneering lasts from about 1660 to about 1690. Governments sort of begin to abandon the no peace beyond the line policy. And they found buccaneers in their service becoming harder and harder to control and their attacks becoming less tolerated. And Caribbean officials start cracking down much harder. You end up with a lot of these guys getting hanged, a lot of them getting exiled, a lot of them getting sent, essentially extradited back to Europe. And so by about 1700, the practice was practically gone. Most of the men moving on to peaceful uh, and legal work or just becoming straight up pirates. Yeah, the the War of Spanish Succession. That's uh, yes, that's true as well. Kind of kind of marked the end of buccaneering, and was well, like the year seventeen hundred. I think is it's seventeen hundred or seventeen oh one is the first time that uh, the Jolly Roger was reported. Mm-hmm. So the first time you ever saw the black flag, kind of it marks the end of buccaneering into just full fledged piracy. Yeah. And now, so there was there was something you and I were talking about this week. Oh man, I think that I you, you kept messaging me about that you were uncovering in your research. Yeah, I found it in like four in or five different online resources that I used. Yeah. Like, so what was that? So the Buccaneers were were widely considered to be a little more jovial, uh, a little more friendly, and there's no way for me to skirt this. Super gay. <laughs> one one well, source on. quoted <laughs> rampant homosexuality. Oh, I was Christ. like, wait, but it then, but it just kind of like keeps going after that. I was like, wait a minute. Well, because when I was researching this episode, I didn't uncover anything like. Oh, this. I found a couple of them. I found a couple of them. Well, and who who just, are some of the sources that are talking I, about? I'll this. post them. I'll post them online, and they were like, but it it just was like, oh yeah, and you know they were. They were a friendly group, and you know, they were they were singing songs. And then they'd get married, and then they'd go and hunt shipping. Lines. I was <laughs> like, like, wait, hold, hold on, stop for a moment. What? So stop now I'm in a rabbit hole of like gay pirate weddings, which were a thing. They would exchange rings, they mm. would share a cabin, and one way that they really proved that they loved each other was to go share female prostitutes together, which makes everything even more weird. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Uh, okay, you know what, I, guys? I sort of, the internet is a dangerous sort place. Of encounter this, especially with with these tropes of the world of piracy and buccaneering, and and just the age of sail in general. Hey, there's a lot of French guys in the age of sail. No, that's not even what I'm talking about. <laughs> Come on. So there's this whole idea, of, especially about the Royal Navy, of like rum, sodomy, and the lash. Mm-hmm. There are there seem to be some 
authors and some researchers who really focus on this. I mean, I don't think it's exactly a revelation that in a certain large group of men, some of them are going to be gay and yeah. some of them are going to find each other. But the, the and okay, that's fine, cool, you know, whatever. I don't care. I was a musical theater major. <laughs> yeah, it's not that there's anything wrong with that. No, it was, it's no. that episode of, totally of, of Seinfeld just for it's totally fine. But they talk. There's this certain like <laughs> sort of yeah. attitude with talking about this sort of stuff, which I think is is less weird than whenever they just straight up glance over it. Where it's well, like, I mean, it's not it's not important to our story, but it it's so weird. It's so weird that some of these guys focus on that. It's like okay, it's like. Yes, we assume that it, it, this is going to happen to some degree. Just, that there are going to be homosexual relationships that develop. I mean, it's not exactly like... But to... to it, it's funny because some of them seem to really walk away from the narrative at large and then go and focus on a bunch of guys playing Pet the Pickle at sea. Yeah. Like, I just don't understand why that was a big part. And then why I decided to just keep clicking links. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm going to take a walk and think about some stuff. I have some theories, but we oh, won't talk God. about it on the phone. Oh, God. <laughs> so, okay, so let's move on from that. And, of course, to all of our listeners out there, be as straight, gay, bi, pan, whatever, as you want. Yeah, we really don't care. We love you all. We love everybody. We love you all. Except for uh, the uh, Jack Sparrow character in Pirates of the Caribbean. <sighs> Anyhow. <sighs> Sorry. That always makes me react poorly. Let's move on to a few terms that are sort of blanket terms that people do tend to use. I don't know if they exactly know what they mean. Let's start with freebooters. Now, this is a term that gets used to describe pirates and privateers and buccaneers a lot. And it's, again, it's a blanket term. I've seen it used for all of the facets of what we've talked about today. Now, it's it's, it's a really charming way to describe a pirate. I enjoy it. It's a good one. We don't use it enough. I enjoy actually, it. Actually, no, I take it back. We we actually use it a decent amount. But, uh, like, I, in general, society doesn't use freebooters near enough. <laughs> it comes from a Dutch term, vrijbootje, uh, which basically means free raiders or free soldiers. Now, I mean, that that stands to reason with privateers and buccaneers. And it's because all their boots were free. They never paid for anything. The Dutch are very generous with footwear. <laughs> I found that in one of the articles where it talked about how they just like gave each other shoes and then got gay married. Wouldn't it be wooden clogs if it's the Dutch? And no, 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 I'm not falling into that stereotype. Okay, we're gonna move on. It's, it's like that. I'm a little Dutch boy. Starburst I'm you, man, was in my head. Now right I can't get it out. Forty-five minute mark that this podcast just goes we, off the rails. We have to. We have to move on. So let's move on to another term: corsairs. We're going to get more into Corsairs for sure. Yes, because the thing about Corsairs is, again, it's a blanket term that's used to describe all the groups that we've talked about. But it's also used to refer to a few specific groups, all of which we can do episodes about. Because there's so much history here. The first is going to be the French Corsairs. Now, the French Corsairs were a series of privateers that for a couple centuries, starting in about the 1520s, began sailing from France... To raid Spanish settlements throughout the uh, the Caribbean, South America, they ranged pretty wide, and they were very, very good at what they did. Mm-hmm. And they were the so, you know some of the first to capture Spanish treasure galleons. A lot of these guys became very rich, very famous. People like Jean Bart, uh, and, and it basically the practice was sort of abandoned around the time of the War of Spanish Succession, which was I think a real watershed moment in life in the Caribbean. 
But the term did kind of stick around and was used to describe especially privateers that sailed from uh, French privateers that sailed during the American Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. You know, we refer to uh, Robert Sarcouf, who made billions of dollars as a privateer captain. He's referred to as probably the world's most successful corsair. Uh, so that's a term that you hear a lot as well. It's a super cool word. Too. I like it. Well, it was, I mean, it was used to name one of the most badass American fighter planes of the Second World War. Yeah, that thing still looks cool. Oh, yeah, it's that, that gullwing thing that I just yeah, like. Anyway. It's, it, yeah, it's just awesome. Corsair, good word. If you guys want to call us Corsairs, we'll, we'll totally... We're okay with that. that. We're not against it. Now, you can also refer to the Barbary Corsairs, who we could do... I mean, we could do five episodes easily on the history of the Barbary Corsairs. Yeah, it... That's another one that it lasted centuries. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of meat on that bone. Yes. And this was a group of uh, pirates that sailed from all the Ottoman client kingdoms on the North African coast. They raided European shipping and settlements for slaves and for booty. Again, for centuries, from about the 15th century. Stop it. Sorry. Yes, I said booty. Mm, Booty. Uh, but they spent several centuries until about the early 19th century, and it was the first. And these guys were the reason for the first ever foreign intervention by the United States. The first real war fought by the United States was the Barbary Wars. Yep. And this was you can thank them for the United States Marines. Yep. From to the shores of Tripoli is where that actually comes from, and eventually they were these ring these pirate rings were kind of broken up by. A series of small wars fought by Britain, France, and the brand new U.S. Navy and Marine Corps. Uh, now, finally, you'll also hear Corsair used to describe the pirates, uh, the fleets, and privateer fleets of the Knights of St. John, who for centuries sailed out of Malta, which is a, a big island in the middle of the Mediterranean, and it's sort of in the middle of everything. And the, and the Knights of St. John and the island of Malta have been a, a, a powder keg for centuries. Uh, fighting the Ottoman Empire, a lot of Southern European powers, the King of Naples, you know, constantly at war. And Corsairs were used to describe the fleets that were sailing out of out of Malta. Now let's get into the term filibuster. So it's not just a term used to describe the uh, never-ending protest screeds that Rand Paul does on the Senate floor. Uh, Rand Paul managing to be somehow the world's best libertarian and the world's worst libertarian at the same <laughs> he time. He toes that line. He toes that line he, quite well. He, like privateers, exist in that gray area. Filibuster is a, essentially another blanket term. It comes from the French term flibustier, which was itself a derivation of that Dutch word vrijboetje. So these words have a very common link. And again, it's a blanket term, and where the term filibuster came into use in politics was the idea that a filibuster was not just a speech but a person it was it was somebody being a filibuster it was somebody essentially going rogue on the floor of the senate so Rand Paul possibly a pirate possibly a pirate that's a discussion for another day so we have pirates we have privateers we have buccaneers we have freebooters, we have corsairs, we have filibusters. I don't know if what we talked about today cleared anything up for you. If anything, we made it way worse for everyone. Yes, including ourselves, I think. Yeah, probably, but at least we had fun doing it, right? Yeah, we had fun doing it. I had a lot of fun talking about this today, and it's always fun to kind of research this sort of thing and, you know, find out some cool stories and 
Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, who it, doesn't love Imperial assets and sea dogs? <laughs> we, yeah, I, I, I have to apologize for us being a little late getting this episode out. We weren't able to. We both had very, very busy. And it's been the week from hell. Busy weeks. It's it's been a bit of a hell week. You know, I had, uh, you know, I had work issues and midterms this week. I know you've been working a lot, and neither of us have been in the best health this past week. Yeah, and I threw my back out, so I've been I've been having back spasms, bellowing like a buffalo, to the point of throwing up. And it's, I tell you what, if you ever had a bad back and you sneezed and you thought that was bad. Try puking your guts out because it, everything hurts so bad that your body just, shuts down. Your back's a mess and you're there puking your ring. Just, oh, it was so bad. I'm just like in the bathroom just crying. Way, it's like five just, in the morning and I'm just crying. That's a term I discovered this week. Puking your ring, which is a little Irish term for puking so hard that, quote, your own arsehole comes up out of your mouth. Yeah, it was kind of like that. <laughs> it's been rough. So, guys, we, we appreciate you uh, waiting for the new material. And I know you've all been chomping at the bit for it. Oh, I know. I know. So I think that's going to wrap up our discussion today. I want to send out a couple thanks. Uh, first off, again, to the Bloody Seamen who provide the music for our podcast. Definitely follow them on social media. Look for their gigs. These guys are incredible. Yeah, they're, they're great. A lot of fun. They are a really, really fun pirate punk band. A little thanks to uh, Jim Naughton, Colonel U.S. Army, retired, good friend of mine from the tabletop wargaming community who he and I exchanged a lot of emails in the last few weeks and had a couple in-person discussions discussing this material. I uh, just want to thank you for the inspiration and some of the links you sent me to some very interesting material. Speaking of the internet, social media, Chris, where can they find us? Oh, uh, man, if you don't have Twitter by now, shame on you, because you can follow all of our comings and goings at Podcast TRR. I know you've got a Facebook. Everybody has a Facebook page. You can find us at Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. It's an easy place to always look us up and find the new uh, material that we're putting out. This episode will be posted there. Whenever we get it up on YouTube, all the links will be shared there. You can find us on our YouTube channel at Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We're going to post some new and interesting stuff there. Uh, If you want to see pictures and some good old behind-the-scenes material, uh, check us out on Instagram at TRRPod. And uh, any questions, concerns, uh, anything you might want to discuss with us, even suggestions. If you don't want to do it on social media, you want to drop us a line on uh, via email, hit us up uh, trrpod at gmail.com. And, of course, you can find every new episode we post on SoundCloud. All you have to do is go to soundcloud.com and search Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. For my personal social media, you can find me on Instagram at MeatNeck, and you can find me on Twitter at MeatNeck2. I would also like to take a minute to send a message out there to everyone who told me that the Pirates were not even going to have 60 wins this season. You can kiss the fattest part of my ass. (laughs) I would like to say, we had a winning season, and you can hold my dick. Yeah, just suck it. Suck it dry. (laughs) Suck it so hard. Everybody that bet me a case of beer, I'm coming for your ass. You understand me? I wrote all that shit down, and I'm coming for your ass. (laughs) This has been a sticking point for the last couple weeks for us. The righteous rage has been flowing through our veins by going 82 and 79. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, it's been magical been absolutely magical and uh the cubs lost in their wild card game fly the l baby i'm so happy about that and they all hate joe madden now it's that super fun point where they just hate they hate on him so bad they are turning on joe madden as fast as steelers fans are turning on the entire team 
<laughs> the great Yinzer meltdown of 2018 is happening right now. And oh man, is it entertaining to watch. So guys, I want to thank you for listening today. Next time, we're going to be stepping away from the world of pirates. We're going to be looking into the world of the thief and the rogue and the renegade, just not in the piratical sense. We're going to be stepping into the world of organized crime. And we're going to be looking at somebody who doesn't quite get a lot of of the recognition that he deserves. A fellow named Meyer Lansky. Yeah, that should be a fun one. So, until next time, everybody, I'm Rob North. My name is Chris Miller. And we invite you to hold fast.